turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11 this morning in the text there. And uh, in the back, they're going to click us through, and Mr. Gabe is going to read for us. So if you found your way in your copy, that's Revelation 2, uh, 8 through 11, or you can follow along with us on screen. Go ahead, Mr. Gabe. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt, by the sec- the second death. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Gabe. So, just to give you some context about what's going on here, Smyrna is the only city of the seven that's still in existence, all right? So, um, and we're talking cities, not necessarily churches, but it's the only city still in existence. It's now called Izmir in Turkey. It's about 40 miles north of Ephesus, as you can see on there on the screen that was just there. It was destroyed by uh, now, I'm going to screw up these names, but I'm going to pronounce them like I know what I'm talking about, right? So I just, uh, it was destroyed by Aletus, king of Lydia, and it was rebuilt in 290 BC by uh, Lish, something with an L, and Antigenes uh, as a model city, okay? It boasted a famous stadium. You kind of saw the picture of the city that was up there for just a minute, uh, but it, uh, it boasted uh, a famous stadium, a library, a public theater. It was the largest in Asia at the time, actually. Um, It claimed to be the birthplace of the great uh, epic poet Homer, if you're familiar with that at all. It was a famous thoroughfare through through the city called the Street of Gold, and it curved around Mount Pages, which rose over 500 feet from the harbor, which was the picture that you saw of the harbor there, and then the the kind of city on a hill, so to speak, that was up there. And um, it, it was it, people would describe it like a necklace on the statue of a goddess. That's that's how they would describe it. it at either end was a temple, one to the a patron divinity, and the other one to Zeus. And so that was at the beginning of the of the of the kind of the the road upward and 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 around. If you can kind of picture it that way. And uh, the Acropolis on Mount Pegasus there was called the crowned or the garland of Smyrna. In New Testament times, the population may have been around 200,000 people, and coins that were uh, minted describe it as the first of Asia in beauty and size. Now, here's a quote uh, that, uh, oh no, unlike most cities, uh, this was uh, had some forethought in its development. It wasn't just kind of there. They planned it out, okay? Here's the quote. There was a cohesiveness and a pattern about the architecture that made it blend together. And as one stood at the sea harbor, looking up toward the top of Mount Pages there, he could see a panorama that led it to be called a crown. Interesting for the text that we just read, right? So it was the center of a lot of this emperor cult worship. We talked about that before, but this is this idea of when they erected temples to the, to the Caesars there in Rome. So they were the first one to erect a temple to Tiberius in A.D. 26. 
It was the first city to build a temple to the goddess of Rome, whatever that is. It also had a large Jewish population who unfortunately was violently opposed to Christianity. And this was probably because some of the historical things that happened between Rome and the Jewish people throughout the times there, okay? So the next quote that I wanted to read to you before we actually get into the the text of the Bible here. So it had this large population. Some years after the book of Revelation, at this point, some years later, the Jews joined the Gentiles to form a mob to call for the death of the bishop of the church at the time, whose name was Polycarp. Has anybody here heard the name Polycarp before at all? Okay, handful of you guys. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Polycarp, uh, they actively assisted in his martyrdom by burning and they prevented the Christians from getting possession of his body afterwards. So this was not a good situation. This was in AD 155. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. He was, he was uh, martyred because he would not call Caesar Lord. Sounds awful familiar to what they did with Jesus, isn't it? Like he's trying to make himself uh, a god, or he's trying to put himself in the place of Caesar, right? Same, same, same issue. Uh, last quote. Smyrna was actually the name for myrrh. Are you familiar with myrrh? Anybody heard of myrrh? Okay. Uh, the fragrant plant that was used in atoning, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in anointing oil prescribed in the book of Exodus. That's where we've heard of it too. I don't know if you, but, but also, you know, Jesus got it at his birth. That's, that's where we all remember it from, right? If we're honest. Oh yeah, that's one of the presents that Jesus got. Yes, okay. But it was around for a long time before this. It was actually mentioned in Exodus and it was used in the process of embalming in Egypt and elsewhere. So its association with death and suffering are well documented. Now, there's a reason I gave you these three quotes that we were talking about. One is, this city is called a crown. This city is known for martyrs. And this city is the name for myrrh, which is, the, is used in embalming and is talked about for with Jesus, right? Some of those things, I hope, stuck out to you as we just heard Gabe reading about what it is that Jesus is writing to this church in particular. If not, hopefully I can help expose this text to us and apply it to us today. But one thing's for sure. Smyrna was famous for two things. First, its beauty, and unfortunately, secondly, its suffering, for Christians at least. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, We know that there is the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we know that our lives have all of that. We ask that you would help us as we look at this text to not only see that which you've written to your people during that time there at Smyrna, but that you would help us to then apply those universal, those eternal truths that you've written to them to our own lives today. We thank you, Lord, that you are revealing your Son his power, his authority in this book. We praise you that you have told us it is a blessing to those who read it and a blessing to those who hear. And we long for and we look forward to receiving that blessing from you today as we dive into your text. And so we praise you for your word, for your son, for who you are, and for what you're doing. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Revelation 2 Uh, verse 8, it starts, this angel to the church of Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. That should sound familiar to you. That is exactly how Jesus was described earlier when John was having this vision of who Jesus was. Remember, we're saying that this is Jesus revealing who he is to John. 
so that John can reveal who he is to the church. Not only this church specifically at this time and this date, but us as his church also, right? And so we need to understand from this text, again, before we even get into here, who is Jesus? Jesus is telling us who he is right here. Jesus is God. Now, he doesn't use those words exactly, but he might as well. He is the first and the last. Well, who's that? Has to be God. Remember Genesis? That's it. And he will be the last, right? And not only that, but he also tells us that he is the resurrected one. Look at what it says in the text, who died and came to life. That he lived, he, he is not only God, full deity, but he's also fully man. That he is the only one that can be a mediator between us and a holy, righteous God. That he lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. And because of his innocence then, was brought back to life. So he is fully God, fully man. He is the resurrected one. And what we know about that then is that he has what he said, he has the keys to death and to Hades. He has the ability to then transfer and give over that life, a righteous life that, that he lived. So this is how he's beginning what he's going to write to Smyrna, because as what we already know, I kind of, I guess I kind of uh, stole my own thunder here, but this is a city that is going to experience martyrdom, of which Polycarp was one of many, just the most famous of them, right? So Jesus is telling them who he is. John, you should remember in Revelation 1, 17 through 18 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. So he's telling them this so that when he tells them what he's about to tell them, he can in essence put forward that second. So what I'm about to tell you, but fear not, because what I'm about to tell you isn't great, right? And so, that brings me to my first point, if you are a note taker. The first point is, looks can be deceiving. On your blanks there, that's what you can fill in there. Looks can be deceiving, okay? And what I mean by that is two sub-points there. And so, to, to find out what those are, we are going to go to Revelation 2, 9, which says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, Tertullian, which is another famous church history father name, in AD 197, in defense of Christianity to the Roman Empire, said, we multiply whenever we are mowed down by you. The blood of Christians is the seeds of the church. In martyrdom, Polycarp is recorded as saying in the day of his death, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. So here's what I mean when I say that the first point is looks can be deceiving. I may look like a loser, but I'm not. And you know why? Because it's not about what's on the outside. It's about Jesus on the inside. So you too might look like a loser, but guess what? You're not. I softened the blow for you there, taking it myself, right? Because I, I love you. And so none of us are losers in Christ. We are winners. He has already had the victory. 
So looks might be deceiving. He tells us, and this is the first sub-point, uh, blessed are the, and you can fill in the blank, right? And that's, I just have dot, dot, dot up there. You thought it was going to be something more than that. But no, think about blessed are the ugly. Why? Because they're going to have new bodies and be made perfect and beautiful, right? That's fine. Blessed are the poor, for they're going to, they're, they're going to be all these, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just let the text speak, shall we? Matthew 5, 2 through 11. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied, and so on. Things are not what they appear, because blessed are those who are in these positions. Blessed are you. Are you in a spot this morning where you don't feel so blessed because of whatever you're going through in your life? And I'm, I, I know, here's, here's the interesting and strange thing. And, 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 and you know what? Shame on you all for what I'm about to say. I know about a lot of you, and, and, I, and that's great, and I want to because I want to pray for you. I want to share your burdens. It, it, is a, a very, it is a very strange job or career to, to be in a place where God gives me the blessing of knowing some intimate and sad, scary, hurtful, whatever things, and I get to share that with you. But do you know what? You don't have to have some degree from a seminary to do that with one another. Should we not be sharing with one another? Is that scary? Is that weird? Are we afraid we're going to be rejected? Sure, okay. But they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love, right? I mean, we sing these things, but do we believe these things? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So blessed are you, brother or sister in Christ. Blessed are you if you are battling with temptation or depression or sorrow or grief. Or blessed are you when you mourn. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst. Blessed are you when your body is failing or when your mind is failing or when you have a relationship that is broken. Blessed are you. Do you know why? Because Scripture tells you that the kingdom of heaven is yours. Scripture tells you that things aren't always as they appear, that looks can be deceiving. We don't know always what God is doing with these things. We just need to trust him for the outcome. And I think we also sung this morning that he's never failed us, right? Do we believe that? James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? 1 Corinthians 1, 27. I, I love this. But God has chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I'll never forget this day. It's, it's just a short a story about my stupidity, which I probably don't even need to tell you because if you've known me long enough, you know, you're like, yeah, that sounds like you. But so, so here's the deal. I, I will never forget the day. I was at seminary and I was, you know, I'm just soaking up all this stuff and, and I'm in this the, the, theology uh, class and this professor uses some kind of 50 cent theology word of which I'm, I'm sure I have forgotten the meaning of now and, and, and whatever. So, so, so whatever it was. And I remember I, I raised my hand and I said, uh, he called on me, and, and, I, and I said, hey, can you explain what you mean by transcendental substantiation, whatever, whatever? And like, 
20 other men in the class or, or whatever it was turned around and looked at me and I felt stupid and I thought to myself, well, I paid for this class just like you did. If I don't know what he's talking about, what good am I? And so I asked the question and, and, and he paused for a minute too. I maybe even have taken it back and he answered the question graciously and so I went on. I, you know, I took my notes and stuff, but I thought to myself, you know, I love 1 Corinthians 1.27 because it says that he's going to use the foolish. And so there's hope for me yet, I thought. And this is what Jesus is saying to his church. As Christians, we are not of this world. And so therefore, we should never expect to win in this world. This is not our home. Second thing, um, things aren't always what they appear. Uh, I want to talk about who the children of Abraham are. And there's a reason that I want to talk about that. So first, I want to start with saying anti-Semitism is wrong, but we do need to understand who are the children of Abraham. He goes on to say this statement, which is a very strong statement. He says, those who say that they are Jews but are not, they're in the synagogue of Satan. So what does that mean? Well, here's what, Here's what I think that means, and you can read other commentaries, and you can glean your other uh, research, but this is my two cents on that. Matthew 3.9 says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? So when Jesus was here, he was talking to the scribes, the Pharisees, and all this kind of stuff. Do I have that up there? Do I have uh, Matthew 9.6 up there? Not yet. Okay, that's fine. You, you keep track, and you put them on there when they're there. Thank you. So Matthew 3, 9, you know, do not presume this. Uh, he can raise up Abraham seeds from, from, from anything. So what is he getting at there? He says, well, it's not just blood lineage, right? My kids are Grusses because they were born into the Gruss household, okay? I don't know if you knew this or not. My kids are not Christians just because they're born to a pastor. Is that news? I hope that's not news to you. None of them are saved just because their daddy works for God. Like, that's not how that works, okay? They don't have an inside track or anything. They need Jesus just as much as any of the rest of us. Romans 2, 28 through 29 then, which is up there, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly and physical, although it is too in that kind of context, but, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. That's what that was supposed to specify. Anyway, it's an illustration of, of that. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. And so what was being said even here is this. The real Israelites, brothers and sisters, are those who are believers in Christ Jesus. And anyone who is not in Christ Jesus is not a real Israelite. Now, they might be a Jew by birth and by lineage, and anti-Semitism is, anti-Semitism is, is wrong because we should be praying for, we should feel deep sorrow that our big brothers in the Old Testament faith have somehow not made it to the New Testament faith. We should have great sorrow that they have a desire to rebuild a temple. Do you know why? Because there is no other sacrifice needs to be made. Now, we can be happy because of how people read and do revelation interpretation. They're like, oh, but that has to happen and Jesus is going to come, and so it's a good thing. So I, I get all that, but what, what we need to understand is when John says things like this, and he's going to say this twice in this next letters to the churches, what he's talking about here is 
Those who are really children of Abraham, those who really have the promise, those who are the people of God are those who are in Christ Jesus, not just by birth. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know them that is not those, it, it is, I'm sorry, know them that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. John 8, 31 through 30, uh, 47 states, in, and I'm going to condense that for you, Abraham's sons do the works of Abraham. If God is our father, then we would love Jesus, and we can only accept that truth by the Spirit. That's it. So that's how we're born into the family of Christ. Just like Asher didn't choose to be born into the family of Christ, he was just born there. That Spirit, that's that idea of predestination. There's a whole other set of sermons and all kinds of stuff that we can go into all this, but I digress. What I'm getting at is, that's what he's talking about here about the synagogue of Satan and, and these Jews who aren't Jews, who say that they're Jews. They're not believers, so they're not of the lineage and the family of Israel now anymore because it's only through Christ. So one day there will be a reconciliation between Jesus and the rest of the Jewish people, the rest of the Israelites who will be brought in. We should pray for that and we should witness to them, and we should love that, and we should be glorifying God for that. But here's why that also matters for us today, okay? That's fine. All the Jew stuff, let's get that aside for just a minute. Because what what's the first part of this point? Looks can be deceiving, right? So just because you show up here on Sunday doesn't mean that you too are a member of Church Universal. Do you, now, do you understand why this applies to us? If that can be said for the Jews who were born into that, how much more can that be said for any of us? Just because we get up in the morning and have some coffee and come in and say hello to one another, that's not what makes you a Christian. That's not what makes you saved. Looks can be deceiving. You won't know that I'm truly saved until the day that you sing songs at my funeral and it's all done and you know if I haven't blown up the faith or walked away from it. That's the day. So that's why for my funeral, if any of you are still alive then or whatever, uh, so I guess Asher for sure, hopefully, and Rowan in the back. Like, at my funeral, y'all better be singing some, hey, he made it, it was okay songs, okay? That's the kind of funeral I want. It's a party, it's over, he can't screw it up anymore, yay, he's in, he made it, okay? Not that we can lose our salvation, that's a whole other theological story and all that kind of stuff too, but we will be preserved. Okay, so looks can be deceiving is the first point that John is saying here. The second thing that, the, that that matters for looks being deceiving is, is, is this, Satan's days are numbered. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear that from time to time. Yeah. Satan's days are numbered. And that's part of what the looks can be deceiving, right? Because of what he's about to say. So looks can be deceiving not only for, for us and who we are and what we are and are we really true or not really true and all that kind of stuff. Looks can be deceiving to what we see out there and what we see Satan doing. So let's continue on to verse 10. He says, do not fear, okay, again, so he's the one who owns uh, the heavens and uh, uh, death and all this. So don't fear, same thing he said to John, don't fear for what you're about to suffer. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why? So that you may be tested. Well, how long is that going to last? For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So looks can be deceiving, and one of the things he talks to us, uh, tells us about what could be deceiving is Satan's days are numbered. I don't know about you, but I look out there at the world. I had a brother today who's talked to me. We, we hear a lot of things about the United States, right? I mean, we get, we get 20, 
Isn't, isn't it not crazy to you that there's 24-hour news? Like, give me a break. Can't you say what you need to say in an hour at six? What happened to that? There's no TV guides anymore. I'm getting old and crotchety, and I'm ready for it. Anyway, if you see world news, you probably think that I, like I do from time to time, and you're like, man, it is bad out there. What in the world? People have lost their ever-loving minds. What is happening? Well, get, that's fine. You know why? Because Satan's days are numbered. This is not how it ends. And we need to also remind ourselves of that too. And he says here, so here's some things that he tells us. Because Satan's days are numbered, here are some ways that that should and could, and I hope, applies to us. The first is, do not fear suffering. Well, I don't know about you. I'm not looking forward to suffering. I'm not going to go out and seek to find suffering. But I do understand that if that happens, there's some subpoints of this subpoint, and they are this. The first is, suffering is temporary. The days are numbered. You see in the text, he says, 10 days. Now, all kinds of commentators have all kinds of things. Does that mean 10 literal days? Is that 10 figurative days? Is that 10 sections of church history? Is that all kinds of blah, blah, blah? I don't know. What I can tell you is, he's telling them this so that they know that it's a finite period of time. Even if your suffering lasts for 20 years and you're thrown in some kind of a gulag over there in Russia, guess what? That's only 20 years. We're talking about eternity here. So he says it's temporary. Jesus tells us that too. Secondly, we need to not fear suffering because it is expected. We should know that. Jesus told us when he was here, hey, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. We're told throughout Revelation of all the terrible stuff that's about to happen through Revelation, if you're familiar with it at all, 100-pound hailstones, bloody water, like it's not good. Not only that, though, it's purposeful. We see that in the text. So why would you fear something that you know is going to make you better, is going to hone you, is going to refine you? Is it unfortunate or is it unpleasurable for a period of time? Yes, it is. But it makes us better. It makes us more like Christ. If nothing else, it gives us joy when we get to heaven and that's done. One of our brothers from church is down uh, in Florida right now, and I was, I was texting him the other day, and uh, I said, hey, because uh, he, he wasn't going to be able to be here, I said, hey, that's fine, man. Uh, I pray that you have good weather. He texts me back. He says, yeah, I went swimming in the golf, and I had my shoes off, and I was sitting in shorts on the front porch. I said, now you're just trying to make me jealous, man. <laughs> but you know what, though? I, he appreciates Florida weather. Why? Because he lives here in Michigan, and this is a bummer, Right? And so your life may have suffering, but it's temporary. It should be expected, and it's for a purpose. And even if that purpose is saying, wow, heaven is so much better than I thought it would be because I left all that behind. There's text that backs that up, but we're going to keep moving on. If you want them, I'm going to tell you. You can write them down and you can check them, okay? You ready? If you're a note taker, it's 2 Timothy 3.12. It's 1 Peter 4.12. And it's 2 Corinthians 4.17. One more time. 2 Timothy 3.12, 1 Peter 4.12, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Those are all what I was going to use as proof text for this one sub point. Second thing, Satan's days are numbered. Don't fear suffering. Because that's the case, we don't have to fear Satan either. Satan is a defeated foe. Satan is a toothless lion. You guys seen Rudolph? 
Everybody seen that movie, Rudolph? Those bumbles, they bounce, you know that kind of thing? And uh, remember when he comes in at the end and he's got no teeth in his mouth? He's He's like, he's just a big teddy bear. And then he like jumps on him and knocks him down. He's like, yeah. You know, it's like, I don't think we'll ever be like that to Satan. Okay, That's, that's, that's not where I was going with that illustration. What I'm saying is Christ has removed his fangs. Oh, death, where is your sting, right? It is merely a doorway we must walk through now to get to our final home. And so we can we cannot fear Satan. What can he do? Uh, he, he said, uh, you, you know, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can throw you into hellfire. Well, that's not Satan. Satan can't do that. All he can do is destroy my body. That's the worst thing he's got. And yeah, that, that is a bummer. I mean, that, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody's physical suffering. The older I get, the more I understand how great it's going to be when I get my new body. But Satan is a defeated foe. He will not have victory over you. He cannot have victory over you. His demons might assail you, but they can never own you. They can never capture you. They can never subjugate you. They can only assail you. And when we put on the armor of our Lord, He guarantees us victory. If not in the moment, then final victory. I have some proof text for that that I do want to read to you because they're in Revelation. So several other times in Revelation, he talks about Satan's defeat. Once in 12.9, uh, 12, once in 12.12, 12, and then another in 20.10. He says this in 12.9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. He was cast out of heaven. He was defeated then. Revelation 12, 12, then he goes on to say, Therefore, since he's cast down, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. Uh, Our firstborn son. He would throw these temper tantrums, man. And, uh, he would cry. This is back when we were in Kentucky. He would cry, and he would bang his head on the ground in the middle of the floor for hours, hour and a half. Now, you can judge my parenting however you want. I don't care. He survived. We're good. Ask him. He knows we love him. It was so frequent and was such ver- uh, fervency that Elise and I, eventually, we were just like, you know what, we're just going to step around you. Like, we cannot, there's no soothing you, this is just your own thing. He's just like his dad, and he's stubborn and hard-headed, and he's like, I'm going to do it until I get what I want. And the only way to solve it was, well, I guess today you're banging on your head on the ground for an hour then, and we love you, and when you're done, we'll, we'll, we'll get together again. Satan is throwing uh, an immense temper tantrum. It's only getting worse because he knows he's got a short time. Revelation 20.10, to end this, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's the end. And so we don't need to fear Satan. He is a defeated foe. And so lastly then, the only tool that he had in his tool belt was death. And so we don't need to fear death either because as I said before, it is a doorway into our eternity. It is not the end. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life, 
and they never, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus said. And then he tells John now in this revelation, he has the keys to, to Hades and to hell and to death and to all those things. He says that he's going to take death and throw it into the fiery furnace there. He says that he's going to defeat Satan. He says, hey, they're going to have life and have it abundantly. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. They said, do you believe this? 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, in closing, death might be a real scenario, but we don't need to fear it. That's what he says here. He says, suffering is temporary, it's expected, it's purposeful, the devil has been defeated, so you don't need to fear him. You don't need to fear death either because it's not the end. And he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. This is super interesting to the people who live in Smyrna who refer to their city as the crown. This is interesting to those who are part of the Roman Empire who, by the way, if you've ever seen these, uh, sometimes they'll wear them at like toga parties or things like that when, when you've been to your last toga party, right? But there was a day where toga parties were, were better than they are now, but they'd, they'd have these fake garlands around their heads, right? Or you run a race, and so the victor goes this, this crown, or to take it back to my own, uh, during the Kentucky Derby, right? The horse wins the race, and they get this wreath of roses that would then be put over the horse, and it's this big, big deal. You know, that's a fading crown. Your uh, trophies that you have from, you know, soccer or hockey or gymnastics or ballet or whatever, those ribbons that you got for participation, all of those things just hang on the mantle or are put in a box and they grow dust and they eventually decay. But the crown that we are going to be given is one that lasts forever. Christ has the last word. Christ is alive forevermore. Christ knows your pain. Christ says you are rich with the riches he provides. Christ says from him you will receive a crown of life. So I want to end by two statements. One, one that I've borrowed from and adapted from John Piper and one that I'm taking directly from the mouth of John. The first is this. Things are worse than they appear. Look around us, right? Satan is only starting to roll his sleeves up, maybe even in your own life. So things are worse than they appear, but are still far better than they seem. You know why? Because we live in the already not yet. We live in the, I already have my crown, I'm just not wearing it yet. It's still being fitted for me. My house is still being built up there. He knows all the stuff I love, and it's just not done yet. He's got a lot of lists to do, because you're all going to join me there, I hope, someday. So things might be worse than they appear, but they are still far better than they seem. And then lastly, to end with the one who is writing this section. So therefore, he who has ear to hear, which I hope is you this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church of Smyrna, because he says the same thing to you, and what he says to you is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And even through persevering in death, he will give you a crown. I look forward to seeing your crowns. 
And I look forward with you to standing around that throne and with the elders also then casting them down where they belong at the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave all so that we might live with him. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us zeal and passion. We ask that you would grant us the ear to hear what you have said to this church. Give us the courage and the resolve to be conquerors, to have no fear of death, knowing that the second death has no power over us. God, we do praise you and thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for giving us your victory in your Son, Jesus Christ, whose name we herald as our champion, our King, and our Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's, let's stand and sing.